electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, the U.S. has reported its first COVID-19 case of unknown origin. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who used to run the FDA, explains what's next for the United States. An epidemic isn't inevitable, but we need to start taking concerted actions right now. And more from the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett's insight on boards, banks, and avoiding corporate disaster. An ounce of prevention is worth a ton of cure. Plus, how the world's most famous investor finds those Cinderella stories. It can take a lot longer than you think, but eventually you get to midnight and everything turns to pumpkins and mice. All that and a few small changes that could make a big difference in your health. Shaking hands is a barbaric thing to do. Barbaric? I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Thursday, February 27th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. COVID-19, or the coronavirus, has taken over nearly every news outlet's coverage this week, including here at CNBC. Last night, the CDC confirmed the first U.S. coronavirus case of unknown origin, a Northern California patient with no known travel history to affected areas or contact with another case. This could be the first instance of so-called community transmission in the United States. The news broke on the same day that Germany's health minister warned that country is at the beginning of an epidemic, with chains of transmission that can no longer be traced. The virus has now spread to at least 47 countries, and the World Health Organization confirmed that new cases outside of China have surpassed those inside China. In Japan, all schools will be closed through March as cases approach 200. In Iran, with 245 infected and 26 dead, Friday prayers have been canceled. In South Korea, case numbers are over 1,700. Here's Joe with Becky, Andrew, and our guest host this morning, Barry Knapp of Ironsides Economics. President Trump as you probably have uh, heard by now, held a news conference last night to reassure the American public and Wall Street uh, that the U.S. government is prepared to respond to an outbreak of the virus. He uh, is appointing Vice President Mike Pence uh, as a point person uh, for the U.S. response. And uh, Eamon Jevers uh, joins us now with more. Um, What do you got? Yeah, well, look, this appointment of Mike Pence by the president of the United States, the White House had gone back and forth about whether or not they were going to appoint a czar. The president insists this is not a czar position, but Mike Pence's appointment here does elevate the administration's response. And the president was in sort of a delicate position yesterday. He was trying to reassure the public uh, that the United States government is fully prepared for this. But even as his health and medical advisors were suggesting to Americans that they'd better brace for more cases of coronavirus inside the United States, the president had this to say about whether or not the virus is going to spread. I don't think it's inevitable. Uh, I think that we're doing a really good job in terms of maintaining borders, in terms of letting people in, in terms of checking people. And also, that's one of the reasons I'm here today, getting the word out so people can 
they'll know. They're going to know. No, I don't think it's I don't think it's inevitable. I think that there's a chance that it could get worse. There's a chance it could get fairly substantially worse. But uh, nothing's inevitable. And Joe, the president also reached for other explanations for that 2000 plus point Dow Jones drop that we've seen in the market this week. Here's my exchange with him on that. To be clear, the Dow Jones dropped more than 2,000 points this week. Are you suggesting that that was overblown? Are financial markets overreacting here? I think the financial markets are very upset when they look at the Democrat candidates standing on that stage making fools out of themselves. And they say, if we ever have a president like this, and there's always a possibility, it's an election, you know, who knows what happens. Now, Joe, when I pressed the president, he did acknowledge that the virus played some role in the 2,000-point sell-off that we've seen here. But this is a president who clearly is looking for other explanations for that stock market sell-off, not happy with what he's seen both in the stock market and in terms of the response by some of the people on his own medical and health team. Uh, the president sort of walking that fine line here between reassuring the public that everything is under control and trying not to really set off any kind of panic either in the public generally or in financial markets, Joe. Yep. And you heard all the, the scuttlebutt in, in, in media sort of uh, even before the president spoke about there are times in a, a president's uh, tenure with defining moments. And, you know, we don't need to go over the list now. But sure. and the reaction of the administration to those defining moments can mean a lot for uh, the, the look back at the tenure uh, of a president. So I'm sure there's a lot of uh, sensitivity uh, to that uh, as well. And yeah, it is a and fine line. And it, it, even if it, you know, love Trump, hate Trump, any president put in that position yesterday probably would have been uh, straining to walk that same fine line between trying to reassure the country, but not trying to sugarcoat it too much. Tough, tough position to be in. Yeah, and you talk about the look back to the president's tenure, but th these if kinds of events can affect the length of the president's tenure. It certainly right? I mean, could. The president has re-election coming up. Right. It is not lost on him and his aides in the White House that this, if it uh, sparks any kind of economic ripple effect, if there are accusations that they've dropped the ball or mishandled this and allowed Americans to get sicker than they otherwise or would. Or just a recession. This could have a problem. Yes, or just or if there's a global slowdown Absolutely. or a recession and a stock market break that it's worse than the, your garden variety Correction, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, of Absolutely. scenarios. So there's an enormous amount at stake for the White House. All right, uh, Eamon. For more on the president's response to coronavirus fears, let's bring in our guest, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He is the former FDA commissioner and CNBC contributor. He also serves on both Pfizer and Illumina's boards. And, and Scott, it's really good to have you here today. Thank Thanks. you. Um, how should we be looking at this? How are you looking at this? Well, I think we're entering uh, a new phase. Uh, I think we're going to have community transmission in the United States. We already do. There's probably cases in major cities, dozens, maybe hundreds, certainly not thousands at this point. We'd be seeing that. But the California case demonstrates that there's community transmission. An epidemic isn't inevitable, but we need to start taking concerted actions right now. We need to crash development of therapeutics and a vaccine. We need to dramatically broaden screening. And people need to start getting prudent. Simple changes in behavior can have a very big impact when distributed over a large population. Hand washing, staying home when you're sick, workplaces changing practices. We might need to start engaging in broader mitigation steps to you know, engage in social distancing and other things like that. When you say workplaces changing, changing uh, what, what do they need to do? Well, I think you need to start thinking about flexibility for employees. If employees are sick, how they can stay home, how you can support employees with things like daycare and other things that can keep them out of the workplace if they're sick. We need to start thinking about if we're going to have to change practices to, to limit social contact. 
cancel large meetings, limit travel. We're not there yet, but those are the kinds of things that you would need to do to prevent an epidemic spread. We will have outbreaks here in the United States. It's inevitable, um, but they, we do not need to have an epidemic here. We can't avoid that. When you sat down at the table, you pulled Purell out of your pocket and actually <laughs> did this to your hands. What, what, what does that do in terms of improving your chances of not getting sick? Well, look, I think a lot of the transfer, people worry about aerosol, and, but there's a certain amount of uh, things that we can't do to prevent that. I think a lot of the transfer of this is probably touching and in touching your face. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're on a plane, it's not the air on the plane, it's someone passing out cups on the plane to all the, all the airline passengers. But I thought that Purell didn't kill viruses. It killed it, bacteria. It, kill, it kills the virus. This it is the coronavirus. It, it appears that this virus is, it lives on surfaces for a period of time, but it's not a hardy virus. So alcohol oh, I, wipes, I've been, I've been saying shaking hands is a barbaric, I, I a barbaric thing to do. Yeah. Are you doing that right now? Are you shaking hands with anybody? Or I've been trying to avoid it. You don't agree? I'm, I nice? don't agree with using the word barbaric. I think that at, at a point like this, it's a good idea not to. Mm -hmm. But I think if, if you weren't worried about it, it's, it's a human thing to do to look someone in the eye and right, shake their hand. I don't think but it's right barbaric. But right that's all I'm thing. saying. Right now barbaric? Is a good what is that? There was a right. study that showed that a fist barbaric. bump could cut transfer by 90%. Uh, <laughs> yes. All right. What about the fist bump? Yeah, that's right. what you said. Because okay. so there's, there's no germs here? It can cut transfer. In all seriousness, I think the, the backstop, the, we have to prepare that this is not something that's going to start and stop. This could become something that we have to live with. And what's going to inevitably be a backstop against it's going to be a therapeutic or a vaccine. We need to invest very heavily in that right Scott, now. we might have a therapeutic already, the, theoretically. We're not going to have a vaccine for at least a, a year and a half. A vaccine's a long way off. So why not, why not focus on, on something that lessens the severity of Right, the, and remdesivir looks promising, and it, and right. it could be here. A Is that a Gilead drug? That's Gilead, and also an antibody-based prophylaxis like what Regeneron's working on. Those okay. things could be near-term opportunities, something we maybe even could have in the late fall or early well, winter. Therapeutically, what about a protease inhibitor? We have stuff already that might... Those it, look it, less efficacious in the, in the in vitro studies. We haven't done good clinical studies with them yet. But I think we, we need a moonshot approach right now. We, we have the right. ability to conquer this with science. We, the science is there. It's available. Regeneron was able to develop prophylactic antibodies to, to Ebola, and they had one in, in the lab for MERS. These things are obtainable, yeah, and that's, that's a what we should be half, focused on. It? It's not a year and a half. It's not for phase one no. and phase two? With H1N1, the swine flu in 2009, that, the, the first case was identified, I think, April 15, 2009. Yep. By September, we had a vaccine. Okay. This is possible, <laughs> and that's what we how need to focus on. How much money? We're, we're almost out of time, but how much money that I think this, we should put billions of dollars. This is not the time to be a fiscal conservative. Okay. Where, where are you on the question of... Uh, the, the weather, the time of year, whether this dies out when we get I, the warmer the summer, sh the summer should be a backstop, but it might not stop transfer entirely because this is a very novel virus where we don't have cross immunity. It should be a backstop. So you could see this dissipate in the summer and then come, come back, back in the fall, but by the fall we'll have a therapeutic hope. Yeah, no, I've seen lots of questions on either side. But. Dr. Gottlieb, I want to thank you for being with Thanks us. Thanks a lot. Great to see you. The outbreak is also taking a toll on companies. HP's bottom line will take a hit this quarter because of the virus. CEO Enrique Loris telling Jim Cramer last night that the impact will be felt most in the company's manufacturing business. So today, majority of the factories Majority. are open, but the production is not at a 100% level. From a demand perspective, we don't see any impact. It's all a supply chain driven impact. We calculated and we have estimated that in Q2, this will have an eight cents impact in EPS. 
In a related story, Microsoft says that it does not expect to meet its quarterly revenue guidance for the segment that includes Windows. It's blaming a slower return to normal after coronavirus supply disruptions. Microsoft generates most of its Windows revenue by selling licenses to device makers, including HP, whose sales have been disrupted by the outbreak. And then shares of Nutanix are plummeting. The cloud storage and networking software company cited the coronavirus as one reason for lowering its 2020 outlook. It's taking a more cautious view on the Asia-Pacific and Japan region, where it generates more than 20% of its revenue. Let's get to the guy with the thick green tie. Okay. Um, Airbnb is out with a statement on uh, the outbreak saying uh, that uh, extenuating circumstances, its policy allows guests and hosts to cancel reservations with no penalties. It's, it's uh, reminding people of this policy. The company says it is working to support the hosts, guests, employees, and communities. It believes that the travel industry will bounce back in the long run. Meantime, JetBlue became the first U.S. carrier to cut fees for changing or canceling flights for passengers concerned about the outbreak. I have a question. You have a question? Yeah, when Airbnb yes. says we can do it without fees, who does that pen? I mean, it's, it's the homeowners who are the ones taking that on the chin, right? Because the fees would be paid to them, I would assume, if you cancel. Maybe I'm wrong. but If you cancel the fees get partially shared with the homeowner who you canceled on who will right. no longer get the revenue exactly dave dave evans points out in my ear the homeowners can also cancel and say forget it i don't want somebody coming to my house right that's possible yeah. too and there and therefore may, i don't know does a fee go to the to the guest? person who you just i don't know we'll dig into that barry knapp is here uh barry watching some of these moves you can get a little bit of whiplash yeah it's been um a fascinating ugly week. But the thing that struck me as I was driving in listening to Dominic and your your headlines that this is the worst week since October of the global financial crisis. And, um, you know, when it, it just got me thinking about, first of all, I had a front row seat for that as a managing director at Lehman Brothers. But um, um, this, when well, you, you almost, think of, you almost caused it, but <laughs> yeah. Okay, we have a long talk about that one. I'm kidding. But, yeah, but it's just funny but, when you say I had a front row seat at Lehman Bros. It's like, yeah, yeah, you did. I did have a front yes. row seat for sure. But um, but the thing that started to occur to me, you know, when we were, I was hearing more discussion about central bank reaction functions and easing policy and the like. If you recall. During going into the global financial crisis, household debt was at its highest levels ever recorded in this country. And the mechanism by which you resolve that is largely household refinancing or mortgage refinancing. That's the single biggest financial obligation that most households have. And rates are at but, record lows. But you couldn't do it. Yeah. There was actually no mortgage credit available. And that's why Fed policy was so ineffective during the crisis because that mortgage credit channel was clogged. But this is different. It's not clogged. Yeah. It's far from clogged, right? We're already running refis at 160% above where they were a year ago before we even had this last you know, 30 basis point leg lower in mortgage rates. And by the way, household obligations as a percent of disposable income are at their all-time low. That's going to go down even further. So the household sector is going to be absolutely flush. They've been deleveraging through this whole business cycle. It's only the second cycle since World War II where that happened. It happened in the 60s as well. Mm -hmm. So getting a reaction, you can get a confidence shock in the household sector, to be sure. You've seen some indication of that from Morning Consult, who does great um, confidence work. It right. did finally take a hit this week. But it, it's likely to be temporary. And then if you think about the business confidence channel, 
And just compare it to what happened a year ago. Going into the trade wars, business confidence was at multi-decade highs because of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So the impact on business confidence and production uh, was pretty profound from the trade war. Now it's at its, it was at its lowest level since 2016. So the delta change of that is likely to be much smaller. Furthermore, from a supply chain disruption perspective, I suspect that this will be less disruptive than the great East Japan earthquake and tsunami that shut down the auto industry for four months and then was quickly followed by the Thai floods that shut down parts of the semiconductor and electronics industry for another couple of months. Interesting. That was also a warning shot to companies. Your interview with Honeywell's CEO at Davos this year, he said, we locally source. Right. We produce where final demand is. 11 was the inflection point for that. The trade war further you know, push that agenda. So I just don't see the supply chain disruption as likely to be as big as those. The confidence channel doesn't look as vulnerable. So yeah, this is a, you know, clearly going to have a hit. But if you think about then the knock-on effects from what happened during the financial crisis, the second order effects, I don't see them as likely to be anything like that. Mm-hmm. So we should, we should stabilize. All right. Cheese will be next. Coming up, Warren Buffett. Insight and ideas from the Berkshire Hathaway chairman and CEO on corporate leadership from the boardroom to times of scandal. You absolutely have to attack a problem as soon as it occurs and you you know about it. And if that had happened, Wells Fargo shareholders would be a lot better off. Squawk Pod will be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Alpha. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Up track. Berkshire Hathaway Chairman and CEO Warren Buffett, the Oracle of Omaha, joined Squawk Box earlier this week for a three hour special we call Ask Warren. You can find a special hour long episode as well as more great content from that interview in your feed for this podcast. Among the topics covered in this vast but really fascinating conversation was corporate board diversity, which was also a topic featured in Berkshire Hathaway's annual shareholder letter. Buffett said that women having a voice in the boardroom continues to be a work in progress. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. I read the letter like everybody else over the weekend. It was fascinated by so many of your comments, Warren. Specifically, I wanted to ask you, you talk about diversity on boards in this letter um, and, and one of the things I wanted you to weigh in on, if you could, is I don't know if you saw, but David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, on our air actually, announced a couple of weeks ago that he won't be taking any companies public, Goldman won't, uh, unless they have at least one uh, diverse board member and are likely going to push that to two. I come from a position of my own experience where I look at the Goldman Sachs board. We have four women out of 11. We have a black lead director. And I really value the diverse perspectives, you know, I'm getting, which are helping me run the company. Starting on July 1st in the U.S. and Europe, we're not going to take a company public unless there's at least one diverse board candidate with a focus on women. And we're going to move toward 2021 requesting two. And we realize that this is a small step, but it's a step in a direction of saying, you know what, we think this is right. We think it's the right advice. You know, in in the state of California, they put a law into place saying that you needed to have a female board member. 
Um, and I'm curious what you think of uh, not just the, the push towards more diversity on boards, but the requirement. Because I also note in your letter that you have very specific thoughts about what it means to be a board member, what it means to be an independent board member, how wealth uh, is involved in all of that. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, at, at Berkshire for decades, we've given the uh, three factors in addition to integrity, but uh, uh, for board membership. And, and, and uh, we want people who are business savvy. Uh, we want them uh, to have a, uh, a strong uh, personal interest in, 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 in Berkshire itself. And uh, we've, we, uh, we've got directors who really uh, represent shareholders basically at Berkshire, and I think they do a great job. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't think that we should delight our customers, that we should treat associates well, that, that we should be, behave well in our community, both local and national, but, but our, share, our, our directors represent the shareholders. So Warren, just to, just to follow up but, on it though, what, what's your thought about both the requirement that, that maybe banks and others, uh, investors are gonna force companies to have uh, diverse candidates on their board, uh, laws, as I mentioned, in California? Yeah, I uh, actually, there, there may be, there's been sent to us a proposal, which, unless it's withdrawn, will be on our proxy. I can't tell you precisely what it says, but that relates to this issue, and we will get our shareholders' view on it. Uh, uh, I, I personally... Uh, and I, I, I want shareholders that, I, I want directors that represent the shareholders. And, you know, at, in terms of my estate, uh, you know, with, with maybe currently $80 billion worth of shares to give to philanthropy, I, I hope that we have, a, and I, we do have a group right. of directors that I think will be very conscious of doing the right thing. The, the reason I ask the question is because the other point you made, which I think is a very smart one and is often mis construed in the corporate governance land is that an independent director these days isn't always independent in large part, and, and you make the point that uh, those that don't come to the table with some form of wealth often need the job. Uh, they need the money, they want the money, and therefore that makes them less independent. And the reason I ask this is um, one of the things as we've been trying to get more diverse candidates uh, on boards, more women on boards, um, as you know, there are, there are, there are fewer CEOs fewer people who have made enormous amounts of money and people therefore then can question their independence. It becomes a very tricky issue. And, and that's what I was hoping you might weigh in on. Yeah, Andrew, I, I've been on 21 publicly owned, uh, boards of publicly owned companies and I've seen them in operation. And I would say that, that people that uh, I have often seen, and that's perfectly understandable, I have often seen people who are class, uh, classified as independent directors and they're getting $300,000 a year for a job that takes them uh, a couple of days, uh, maybe six times a year, maybe four times a year. And uh, uh, the company flies them to their office and it, it's very enjoyable and the company's good. And, and uh, uh, who wouldn't want a job like that? I mean, uh, it's, it's an incredible job. And people, I get calls from, I get calls from headhunters. I get calls from CEOs and, uh, uh, they ask, you know, who I think would make a, quote, good, end quote, director. And what they are asking is, you know, who is not going to cause too much trouble and who is going to reflect, who their name is going to reflect credit on the institution. And they are not looking for somebody that, that, uh, uh, that I would regard 
as really independent. And I don't blame them. I mean, if, 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 if I had spent my life being a, you know, a teacher or whatever it might be, I mean, a, a, my IQ is just as high as the average or higher than the people on the boards and all that. But on the other hand, I want to get on a board. I mean, 300,000 bucks a year would look terrific. And you don't even have to retire probably in most cases at 65 or anything of the sort. So to call them independent is ridiculous. Uh, and uh, if, you're, if you're on one board like that, you want to really go on another one and be, make 600000 a year, and you are not going to do things that irritate your present CEO so when he or she gets a call and says, would this guy make a good director, that the answer is no. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's just ridiculous to ignore the, the factor of compensation with board members. A lot of people had questions about the banks, about what's happening with the banks, what you've changed with some of your um, investments over time. Jason Goldberg writes in, he says, please ask Warren about his views on the bank stocks in general and on Wells Fargo in particular. Over the last two quarters, he sold almost a quarter of his longstanding uh, Wells Fargo stake. Also in the fourth quarter, he dumped a third of his Goldman, stock, uh, Goldman Sachs shares, although he still owns over $75 billion in bank equity. Banking is a good business if you don't do dumb things on the asset side, I mean, basically. And uh, it, 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 it's a business that uh, the banks we own earn between... Uh, the commercial banks earn between 12% and 16% or so uh, on tangent, net tangible assets. That's a good business. It's a fantastic business against the long-term bond, uh, you know, at 2%. Uh, if you have a choice between a 2% instrument and a 12% instrument, which one's going to win over time? So, so if you ask me whether I think... Uh, uh, banks are going to go down where they only earn 3 or 4% on tangible assets. I don't think that'll happen. The question is really whether they do something massively dumb, I mean, which periodically a number of banks have done. And I, I, I feel very good about the banks we own. I, they're, they're very attractive compared to most other securities I see. And, and most of them are buying, Bank of America is buying in a lot of stock every year. So our ownership of the Bank of America this year probably will go up 7 or 8% without us spending a dime. Uh, I, I'd like to own any business, any good business, where my ownership goes up 7 or 8% every year without me spending any money, and on top of it, I get a dividend and so on. It, they're, very, they're very attractive, both against interest rates and against, uh, uh, or against bonds and against other stocks, in my view. You say occasionally they do dumb things. Uh, maybe you're talking about Wells Fargo with the scandal that it had. It just settled uh, on Friday with a number of the regulatory institutions that were kind of looking into it, the investigations that were taking place for $3 billion. Yeah. Does this mean that they have kind of finally gotten through that and can move forward? I don't know the answer to that. I know that they made $3 billion because it was announced. I don't know what else is outstanding. But Wells Fargo's classic in, in, in terms of one lesson. Uh, my partner, Charlie Munger, you know, he says, whenever we have a problem, you attack it immediately. He says an ounce of prevention is worth a ton of cure. And we've seen that time after time. And the interesting thing, I, 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 and I don't know the details at all, but the original thing was a bunch of, whole bunch of phony accounts. Now, I don't know how, if you open up a couple million phony accounts, you make any money on it at all. I, mean, I don't. The shareholders didn't make money. People say that. Well, the, people, well, the incentive the, structure was set up so that some of the employees. It was the dumbest didn't make incentive money. system you can think. And as soon as you learn, you can devise dumb incentive systems. We've done them ourselves. I mean, you can, you can cause people to do the wrong thing because they will do what they're incented to do, and they had a, 
obviously a very dumb incentive system. People started playing it various ways. And the big thing is they ignored, ignored it when they found out about it. I mean, you, you, you're going to do dumb things in business. And we do them every day, you know. But the, the, you absolutely have to attack a problem as soon as it occurs and you, and you know about it. Let me ask you a broader question that comes in just on interest rates sure. and the impact that that might have as well. Varun Jane writes in on Facebook, uh, Hi, I'm a huge fan and a student of Mr. Buffett. Please ask him what impact does the zero interest rate environment across places like Japan and Europe have on their banks, whether the business is still good, and does the prolonged low interest rate regime in the United States hurt the prospects of American banks like J.P. Morgan, etc.? Generally speaking... With a lot of, but there are a lot of other variables too. But the, the banks are going to make more money if there's if there are higher rates with a with a steeper curve. Uh, the curve makes is, is more important. In other words, the ten-year versus uh, short-term rates uh, may make more difference in the ab- absolute level. But American banks have made very good money with very low interest rates around the world. Uh, uh, if you look in the UK or Europe uh, or Japan, uh, even lower rates have made it pretty tough for banks. The, the returns uh, on equity are not as high, and they have to use more leverage uh, to even get the same returns, and I don't like that as well. You made a point in the letter of saying that you don't know how long these interest rates will last. Right. You and Charlie never try and never. figure these things out. But we did have St. Louis Fed President uh, Jim Bullard on the program last week, and he said that he expects to see these low interest rates for a long time to come. We watch uh, financial stability issues and bubble type issues uh, very carefully. I think the conventional wisdom is that valuations look high, but not at this level of interest rates. And so to the extent you think this level of interest rates is probably the future, which I've been arguing, I think we're okay for now. That does raise a lot of questions, if that happens, about what this means for the stock market, what that means for banks, what that means for insurance companies, which you touched on in the letter, too. It's bad for insurance companies, but it's good for stocks. Bad for insurance companies. And what happens to the insurance companies as a result? Are they getting more? Well, are, are some they, insurance companies kind of pushing well, what, out who, risk? The ones that really get hurt on it are, are, are either life or annuity companies that have promised returns. The property casualty business doesn't promise returns. It still holds money, so it hurts them. But if you promise somebody an annuity that's going to pay them 3 or 4%, and now you find that you're reinvesting your money at 1% or something, uh, uh, you know, you're going to disappear. <laughs> Are insurance companies being forced to make riskier and riskier bets? Well, they, they shouldn't be. I mean, the answer, if, if you need to get 3% and you're only getting 1%, the answer is to quit giving 3%. It's not to try and get the one up to three and do more dangerous things. You should always adapt your consumption to your income. You shouldn't try and adjust your income to your consumption. <laughs> That's a basic principle for individuals, businesses, and everything else. And reaching for yield is really stupid, but it's very human. I mean, and I understand it. Uh, and people say, well, I've saved all this money all my life, and now I can only get 1% on it. What do I do? And the answer is you learn to live on 1%, unfortunately. And, and uh, you don't go and listen to some salesman come along and tell you, I've got some magic way to get you 5%. Do you think, though, I, that that's what should be happening? Do you think that there is more risk taking place in the insurance sure. market as well? and you see that in... 
you see that in, in, in what they call leveraged loans and weaker covenants and all. No, people are reaching for yield. There's no question about that. And that's stupid. And it, it has consequences over time. Uh, but it's very human. Consequences that could have a big market impact. Depends how far it goes. Yeah, yeah. It's the, it's, it's something that, the things that get built in slowly, people going crazy in, in tech companies in the late 1990s, it, it can take a lot longer than you think. Mm -hmm. But eventually you get to midnight and everything turns to pumpkins and mice. Chip Crook writes in a note and says it was reported that Boeing was looking for a large cash loan. Were you ever approached about Berkshire loaning the money? Kind of like the Goldman Sachs deal from years, Sachs deal from years no, ago. I think I think Boeing's raised about 13 billion, uh, but that's bank type money. In other words, I, my memory is that it's, it's maybe one percent, you know, plus like they're, they're they're looking for they're, they're looking for traditional bank loans, and we don't make tra traditional bank loans. You also talked in the letter about how Berkshire Hathaway has Berkshire Hathaway, Hathaway Energy, I should say, has the ability and the talent to manage big investments, $100 billion and more. I think you wrote, we stand ready and willing and able on such opportunities. Uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom uh, asked you at one point to bid on PG&E. Is that such an opportunity? PG&E, we obviously, I mean, we work with them for decades and been familiar with them, uh, but but that doesn't that doesn't fit Berkshire but if, if there were a hundred billion of transmission lines or whatever it might be Berkshire could do it I mean and we would love it uh, that happens to be a very tough thing to do because you cross all these states and everybody says not in my backyard and all that but but uh, there can be huge intelligent investment made in the utility energy area and no one is better equipped to do it than Berkshire in both talent and resources why does PG&E not fit that bill? It's too tough. I don't, I don't know the answer to it. I mean, it, uh, uh, rearranging that utility. Uh, I think, uh, I know Governor Newsom. I think he's a very, very, very smart guy. And, and in terms of solving this problem, it's just not easy. You've got so many constituencies and they're at each other's throats and there's lots of money involved. And uh, I don't want to be the guy. To try. I, I don't know how to solve all that. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Thank you for listening to Squawk Pod. Tomorrow, we wrap up our special week of podcast segments with Warren Buffett, the wisdom of the Oracle of Omaha. You certainly can't predict the market by reading the daily newspaper, that is for sure. And you really can't, you certainly can't 
predict the market by listening to me. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod. We are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a minute, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice. That helps other listeners find Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Clear. Thanks, guys. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.